This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by HID Global, powering trusted identities of the world's people, places, and things. So when we're talking public-private partnerships, we're actually talking about, firstly, understanding who makes up our public. Secondly, what are the public bodies that are going to be impacted by where the public operate? Really the idea of everybody turning up in the office from nine to five every day from henceforth on is going to be challenged. And, and that's an opportunity to for organizations to look at the way, whether the way they manage identity. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Security Management Highlights coming to you from GSX 2021 in Orlando, Florida. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Leticia Miana, CPP PSP is the ASIS Chapter Chair for the United Kingdom and Global Security Capability Manager at Unilever. Leticia Amiana, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hi, Chuck. Now, today we're going to talk about two things, which are really tied together. We're going to talk about the UK Protect Duty and public and private partnerships, which kind of go together to these two topics, but there are a couple of things we're going to carve out. Now, let's first talk about uh, UK Protect Duty. Let's define that uh, using Queen's English, which is always better than American English. I love this name. It implies that I have to do something. I have to protect, and, and there's a reason I have to because I have a duty. But let's explain to people uh, what UK Protect Duty is. So um, the UK um, started a consultation period. This is how we typically um, work towards a standard or, or a sort of a regulatory approach to achieving um, a standard. Um, so the consultation has just closed, um, which happened, I think, um, for, for earlier this year and closed at the beginning of this month. And essentially what that was doing is it was just testing the water with all the different businesses and partnerships that it was likely to uh, impact the most. So when you talk about um, UK Protect, it, I, the, the, the duty is mainly focused on public space. So many, many people, particularly in the corporate world, thought, well, that's great. That's not us. Um, and, and this is mainly to do with councils and pu public areas, public spaces, you know, um, shop, shop high streets in the UK that are pedestrianized, um, anywhere that parks where people tend to congregate. What I found through uh, this sort of protect duty a consultation period is actually there's a whole bigger piece to this. Uh, and there's there's many, many elements. And that's why consultation is so important, because it drives and, and makes uh, us as security professionals more aware of, of where these risks are and all these different nuances that have to be balanced by different teams. Now, what I love about the UK and their security, of course, you guys have been doing this longer than anybody else. You invented police forces, for gosh sake. So you really, you really have a handle on this <laughs> stuff. Uh, you have some comp uh, nationwide basic standards for security. In the United States, there's 50 states. Everybody has a different policy about security. It's not really together, right? We don't work together on that. Uh, if you talk about public spaces, is there anything eventually that is not a public space, if you think about it? Of course, there's the standards for parks and, and stadiums and things like that. But, you know, if I have a big corporation and I have a, a fountain in front of my giant corporation building, 
I really can't get away from addressing UK Protect Duty because that space on my property is public. So it really brings in almost everybody to play in this area, doesn't it? It does. And there are, there are some sort of um, metrics that they've alluded to in this and and you know it's 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 there at the moment but but exactly you bring up the point which is why uh, we're doing um you know the panel discussion for GSX because who is the public and what is a public space really um now the consultation duty has defined what, what it feels is a public space but our discussion really is to say about Okay, we sort of get what a public space is through 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 your definition uh, there, but how do we manage it? How do we control it? How do we standardize it? And how do we educate on it? Um, so so there's there's still a lot to really draw out, and that's really why ASIS and and the UK chapter really wants to bring this to fruition and and wants to talk and be involved with this. Because it's such a it's such a meaningful piece of work that will make such a difference and hopefully will will provide some professionalism and standardization in these public spaces. Because uh, what I've seen as, as, as myself being the public on occasions is I've gone to one venue and I might be going through metal detection, bag searches, you know, uh, and, and filtered through funneling. And then I could go to another public space that I personally think is more risky and, and I'm just able to walk in. Um, and so that's the difference between, you know, having security professionals in those public spaces who are doing proper risk assessments with the proper intelligence, working together with the intelligence agencies and the police forces to make sure that those assessments are correct and the control measures are put in. The challenge, though, is that the public perception is not going to be the same as a security professional. And, and, and as I just alluded to, why is one venue uh, doing all these control measures and another not? And again, I think there's a little bit of education to do with the public. Well, I agree with you. So it must drive you nutty like it drives me crazy when I go out and see things <laughs> and all these different standards. And I go, oh, I don't feel great going to this place. And down the street, I feel better. But let me let me present this mm -hmm. to you. I used to do some works in the Port of Los Angeles. I used to provide security guards to these different businesses. There is a uh, Homeland Security standard for ports, and the Coast Guard's in charge of that here. And the Coast Guard says, okay, look, uh, Company A, here's some minimum standards. Uh, you're a big corporation. We want you to do this. And here's Company B, very small, smaller company, doesn't have the resources. You can get away with doing a little less. Now, that sounds not great, right? Because there's two different standards, but at least there's a standard, right? In other words, somebody's trying to get some minimum things put in here. And, and I think that is the goal eventually, to just start the conversation and at least have people trying to coordinate this. Are you finding that there's any resistance between the public and private sectors on this? Uh, I mean, not here when we started it after 9-11, there was a little push, but, but really people are kind of on board with it now. How is it being perceived by the companies uh, that are participating? Well, I can only give you my perspective. I, I'm not in, um, you know, in any sort of industry with with data behind this at the moment. However, uh, if I if I can allude to um, my learned friends that are on the uh, GSX recording about this, um, particularly amongst the stadia 
uh, and, and sports venues, they typically have uh, personnel that advise and guide, and they're typically connected with UK government and or our CPNI, which is our critical national infrastructure arm of MI5. And they will get their intelligence and information and stuff like that. So there are some avenues to get your information. But what I find hugely interesting here, as you've alluded to, are the small voluntary organizations that use public spaces to do good things. You know, charities uh, use a lot of public spaces. So who becomes responsible for the public that comes to a charity, to, to a charity space? Who is responsible when a charity is putting on an event? Um, it's actually under the consult, uh, under the consultation at the moment. The, the, the argument that it is on the host and on the facility to share the burden. But then you start getting into, well, that facility doesn't necessarily have the normal risks to it. So does the person who does the risk assessment have the knowledge and competency to be able to assess the terrorism and the security threat risk assessment behind that? So then we get into this whole other discussion about competency in order to be able to do the risk assessment in the first place. So I think, again, as you've alluded to, you've got the big, big capability and the access to uh, the knowledge, whether that's through mine guarding contracts and, and very top notch security officers, whether that's through existing links that the council may have operated because they've had public space uh, management in the past. But you could go to smaller councils now, the more vulnerable targets. And have they had that level of awareness, education and understanding either presented to them? And would they know where to go to ask for help? And that's why I believe ASIS needs to get involved, uh, particularly in the UK at the moment, by reaching out to these communities and just saying we're here, even if it's a first stop to have conversations about who we are, what we do and how we can help. Now, let's tie this to a discussion about public-private partnerships. Let's shift the conversation a little bit to public-private partnerships, which ties into the duty, right, because people have to work together on this. Tell me how that, how that works. Uh, when you say public, let's define public. Who are the people participating in that, in that uh, partnership? Okay, so when we're talking about the public, we're talking literally in the UK, everybody has a voice. Because even though I work for a private company, I am the public in my spare time when I'm not contracted to work. So when we're talking public-private partnerships, we're actually talking about, firstly, understanding who makes up our public. Secondly, what are the public bodies that are going to be impacted by where the public operate? Then once you understand who owns the areas that the public operate within when they have a freedom, um, then you get to talk to our Okay, so how many people now are involved in that conversation? And that's where I believe my eyes got opened about how much other areas of vulnerability we have now. I mean, it really, and, and I mean, it should be obvious to those that probably are not as corporate uh, as myself, but you know, you start thinking of my goodness, yeah, beaches. Beaches are a public space. And and I think back, wow, so that's a council responsibility. Since, um, you know, some of the uh, attacks that we know have happened on foreign beaches, uh, 
Did any of our UK councils assess their beaches for that threat? Or did they just think, oh, that's a foreign issue? Um, like I, I ask on, on the, on the uh, recording, you know, to my friend from stadiums uh, and arenas, I, I really wanted to know how many stadiums and arenas then did a risk assessment after the Paris um, uh, stadium attack. You know, did they just think, oh, that's France? You know, these things were coming closer and closer. And, and that's where when I was asking the questions, a lot of people that look after those spaces are traditionally facilities or health and safety people. Uh, and I guess that's what I'm starting to see a lot more now of, of, of people working in these spaces being expected to do security. And it's not their bag. It's not what they've been trained. They wouldn't know where to go. And they'll go to a provider. And that's possibly one of the best things to do and one of the worst things to do, depending on the provider. So a very longish answer to your original question there, Chuck, but we're all the public. So we're all, I think, should be thinking about these things and have a say. And the flip side of that is a lot of the people we employ in these large corporates around the UK and globally, I have the access to a lot of the public. So it's my duty, I believe, to work with um, uh, uh, these these duties and, and, and the government and police agencies to educate who are the public when they're not in our corporate buildings or, or being paid to be in a private space. Well, to coin one of my favorite phrases, I think your answer was brilliant. All right, here's why. You have just identified or conducted a mini gap analysis for me. I've seen this at 30,000 feet and thought, you know what? Nobody really owns the beach, right? It's not private property usually. And there's people, municipalities that have some jurisdiction over it. But is anybody paying attention to these pieces of property, these areas that aren't, you know, owned by a private party, owned by a corporation, managed specifically? I think there's a lot of gaps in what you just said. And I think the good news is mm -hmm. that the UK is having a conversation where most people are not having a conversation yeah. about. So certainly it's a start. Uh, where would you think some other gaps would come up uh, thinking this way? I mean, the beach to me was, was really brilliant to think about. I never thought about it that way. But what other areas might be mm. a gap where we're, not, where we're not really covering specifically? So the other thing, that the part that came to my mind when we considered this is, is the obvious places, but they're so obvious you don't think about them. Just normal parks. Normal, open, big open spaces, you know, that people will take their family for a picnic. You know, we've seen those being attacked in the UK already. Uh, we had a, an attack uh, in Reading. Um, bridges, you know, bridges, whether it's car, pedestrian, whatever. Who owns the bridge? How do we protect a bridge when it's publicly accessible and used and somebody wants to go a bit crazy with a bladed weapon? Um, so... There's, there's lots, especially when you know that anywhere with large amounts of public um, congregating is now a target. We, we have to flip the ownership in some regards from the space to the person. And, and this is what I like about what we're doing within um, the UK. We've already got Action Counters Terrorism, known as ACT, uh, and we're trying to educate the public about um, community awareness uh, around terrorism so that the UK government has done quite a good job in, in top and bottom-ended approach. Now, where I see the private partnership working is that space in the middle, 
meshing it together by constantly working with the private um, employees uh, who are public in their day off whilst we've got them under our houses and roofs and and, and uh, captured audience almost to keep them reminded about the risks and issues and make them aware that public spaces are to be enjoyed but in order to enjoy them we have to be a community and we need to get back to some of this community mindset rather than uh, internal mindset that I'm okay Jack. Excellent excellent information I've been speaking with Patricia Yamiata She's the chair of the UK chapter. We've been talking about UK Protect Duty and public-private partnerships working together to really come up with uh, with some solutions or at least start the dialogue. Fascinating stuff. And I really, really appreciate you coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks, Chuck. Always a pleasure. Julian Lovelock is vice president of the global business segment at HID Global. Mr. Julian, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to talk about converged credentialing for the hybrid workplace. You know, this is the new soup of the day, isn't it? It's nobody expected everybody in the world to be on the Internet at the same time because of COVID. We have people working at home, people working at the office. It's really created an instant challenge to get this right uh, because it's created so many vulnerabilities. Uh, Talk to me about unifying cyber and physical security to accommodate flexible post-pandemic workforces. Convergence is a word we hear, but that might be too simple a word. Yeah, for sure. I mean, convergence is used in a number of different contexts. And to touch on your initial kind of opening observation, I think the we were already had certain trend towards a hybrid workplace. I mean, people were already working a lot from airports and stuff before and home before um, COVID came along. But in a post-COVID kind of work environment, I think we all understand that it's that hybrid trend is going to be accelerated. And really the idea of everybody turning up in the office from nine to five every day from henceforth on is going to be challenged. And and that's an opportunity to for organizations to look at the way, whether the way they manage identity um, works for that more hybrid workplace, both from the perspective of physical access and also IT systems access. And a big part of that is the way the organization manages and issues credentials for its workforce in particular, but extend that out to contractors and even visitors. And can those credentials work well in that hybrid workplace where that credential can serve as both a means to access the office when you come into the building and many different offices, and maybe you don't have a fixed office anymore, and also a credential that can be used securely using multi-factor authentication to access corporate networks, corporate applications remotely from home or other environments. So how do we ensure workforces have the flexibility to securely access work from anywhere? I think this was the challenge when I heard about this. You know, If I'm on my network and I'm giving permissions in my directories and setting up things, that's fairly straightforward. But... Am I I giving you permission on your Windows NT computer that you've had at your house for 20 years? Yeah. I mean, that's got to be mind-numbing to get that set up. Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the, often break the problem down into the authentication part, which is essentially validating that you, as the person trying to access the resource, is who you say you are. That's essentially what authentication is. 
and then access management or authorization once you've once you've ascertained you know confidently who you are then figuring out what you're allowed to do so when we talk about credentials we're focused primarily on the first part of that the authentication part what's the mechanism by which you uh, you know prove your identity when you're trying to access a resource whether that's a building or a computer site and you know what we understand is that this isn't a one size fits all you know way to go about it there are different authentication technologies out there depending on you know whether you're trying to log on to windows walk into a building access a vpn and those authentication technologies range from you know, FIDO to PKI to one-time password technologies to technologies that are specific to physical access like CIOS or MyFair. And then there's the form factor of that credential, which could be a card, could be some kind of key fob, could be a mobile phone. And if you look across a large, complicated organization, there's no one-size-fits-all. You can't go to an organization of 10,000 employees and another 5,000 contractors and say, you will use this form factor with this authentication technology and it will work for everything. So what organizations are looking for is a solution that's flexible enough to be able to manage multiple different authentication technologies. Um, again, CIOS, MyFair, FIDO, PKI, one-time passwords on multiple different form factors, mobile phones, smart cards, USB key fobs, but that centralized management of a single platform that can manage those different authentication technologies on those different form factors. And, and that's the essence of a next generation credential management solution with the associated credentials that supports the converged access use cases that we talk about, i.e. both physical and logical access in a hybrid workplace where one day you're in the office, the next day you're at home, the third day you're at the train station. Now, this is going to sound like a weird question, but are we more secure or less secure with this shift to this hybrid workplace? I think maybe for the first couple of months we were more vulnerable. I think we're more secure now. What's your, what's your thought on that? I think what this has done and it reinforces your statement that we're more secure is it has forced a lot of organizations to step up and deploy multi-factor authentication because whereas when everyone was coming into the office they there was a maybe a false level of comfort that because the individual accessing the computer system was within the walls of the building and on the local network that you could trust them when you think about, when IT departments think about that user logging in from home, that trust kind of evaporates, at which point you move to more of a, a zero trust strategy where multi-factor authentication is an integral part of that. So organizations that have stepped up and implemented multi-factor authentication, and that, that's one of multiple layers. I don't want to pretend that's a panacea for all evils, but that is an important layer. Organizations who've stepped up are probably more secure than they were back in the day when they trusted the perimeter of their building and a Windows password. Organizations that have yet to do that or have, are kind of still halfway through that journey potentially have an increased risk 
area and might be in certain areas less secure than they were until they get through that journey. What does Julian worry about for 2022? Do we have things emerging that are going to be a new challenge in this space? HID, you guys have been around forever. You're a legacy company. And I, and I suspect you have some forecasting in your, in your plans. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what I worry about a little bit is the amount of noise out there in the market in terms of every, you know, every day there's a, a new technology that's going to solve the problem of passwords. Uh, and it gets confusing. And often those new technologies are the same thing under the covers. Sometimes they're not. But I, I worry that that noise creates confusion in the market uh, and distraction. And, and I'm I'm actually pretty confident that the technologies that we need to solve this problem are, are already there. It's just organizations who can explain how to use those technologies as a, as a suite of tools. As I said earlier, there's no one size fits all, but to use those technologies as a suite of tools to solve at least the multi-factor authentication layer of the overall access management challenge. So, so that's my concern, that, that the noise confuses people. And when in reality, the technologies that are out there are pretty solid, it's just putting in place a solid company strategy that works for your organization to deploy those technologies. Well, that's very well said. And it reminds me of the VHS versus beta battle way back in the day. I was at the studios when this was happening. Beta decks, superior technology by far, not even close to VCR quality. Really, really good. Who won? VCRs won, right? Because it's a business. There's all kinds of factors besides what's best. Sometimes it's driven by what's the least expensive and stuff. So I could see this happening. The noise is confusing and people could certainly select something that's not yeah. the best choice. There's no doubt about that. Mr. Julian Lovelock of HID Global, good information, my friend. And I got to say, you have the perfect name for being in the security business. I think I think that really goes well. <laughs> yeah, it has been commented on before, yeah. Yeah, it's very handy being in a, an access card uh, company, Lovelock. Very good. All right, my friend. Thanks so much, Kurt, on Security Management yeah. Highlights, and uh, good luck to you. Not at all. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate the time. This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by HID Global powering trusted identities of the world's people, places, and things.